open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. And we'll start reading at verse 31. So Jeremiah 31, 31. And that text says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So there's this fascinating an intriguing collaboration, musical collaboration between uh, cultural icons, between Johnny Cash and U2. They did a song together called The Wanderer. And Bono, the lead singer of U2, he wrote a song he couldn't see himself singing, and he insisted it had to be Johnny Cash because he saw him, he says, as a godly man who had spent time in the desert. And the result is this song with Johnny Cash's rough, deep voice over rhythmic U2 synthesizer, and Bono, he says that the song was inspired by Ecclesiastes. It has this man wandering through what sounds like a, a consumeristic apocalypse. Capitals of tin, it says, atomic skies, streets of gold, but the cities are soulless, the song says. And I think Bono was right to recruit Cash so we can hear the, the words with gravity when he sings the most poignant line. It says this, they say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. And what I find so compelling about this song is, as you listen to it is that it seems to encompass both sides of this coin that we human beings are always flipping, both with its lyrics and its sound. On the, on the one side, the soulless city that wants the kingdom without the king, reflected by that synth music. And then on the other side, the wanderer himself, sung by Johnny Cash, who says, I went out there in search of experience to taste and touch and feel as much as a man can before he repents. He's the opposite of that soulless city that he criticizes. He wants the king, but he doesn't want his kingdom. He's a lone wanderer in search of personal experience, and he can repent later. And to add another really intriguing layer to this is whether intentionally or not, it seems to me like Bono and Johnny Cash themselves reflect these two poles. They're both Christian men of faith, but they're very different. Cash is this carouser, this public sinner and private prophet, as one person described him. And Bono is this public do-gooder, winning humanitarian awards all the time, and while having mild enough claims about Jesus to be adored by the masses. By God's grace, it doesn't seem like either of them fully fell into either extreme, but they're both tempted in these two different directions. And that's the way it happens for 
all peoples and cultures. There's cultures that teach your children, you are wonderful just the way you are. You don't need to change a thing. And there are cultures that tell your children, you better live up. And we as people, especially religious people, can be tempted in one extreme or the other. What we could call law without love or love without law. Legalism or relativism. People and cultures, they fall, into, they fall off the boat on one of these two sides. Or we oscillate between the two. The religious folks in Jeremiah's day were about love without law. Relativistic. And the folks above Jesus' day were about law without love. And no matter which side of the boat they fall off on, when they fall off, they get wet. There's a biblical concept mentioned in this text that goes a long way to reconciling these two things, though. It clears away the false dichotomy. Because to God, this distinction is nonsense. You can't really have one without the other. With God, there is never law without love. And there is never love without law. Love always makes demands on the lovers. And God's demands are always loving. And we see this when we understand the concept of covenant. Jeremiah is talking about a new covenant, but before we talk about the new one, we should understand covenants in general. Our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. This is how he always enters into relationships. Covenants in biblical times were more common than they are today, but we still have at least one concept of covenant in our culture that can help us get a grip on understanding it, and that is marriage. And if you notice in this text, that's the image God gives us in this passage in Jeremiah for understanding his covenant with Israel. Because in verse 32, he says, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So he took these people by the hand, he says, as their husband, forming a covenant like a marriage with them. And marriage, though we have lost some of the covenantal vision of it, it is intended to be a covenant. In that sense, it's a formal, binding relationship with a purpose. God sees that, you know, with exceptions, there is this purpose of raising new human beings. And God sees the development of new human beings as of such importance that it must happen within the stability and fellowship of a covenant. And at, at weddings, we hear people make covenant promises to love, to serve, etc. But they also say for better or for worse, until death do us part. Marriage has conditions, but it transcends those conditions. It's a partnership for a purpose, but it also is about more than achieving goals. It's about a relationship and intimacy. And this is how we ought to understand biblical covenants, like a marriage, which is, which is a covenant, one of the most essential covenants. It's a formal voluntary, binding relationship with a purpose. And in, the, in that little description I just gave of covenants, you can begin to see how it reconciles these divisions between law and love. I mean, the terms voluntary and relationship point toward love. And the terms binding and purpose point toward laws. A covenant is the combination of law and love. And our God is a covenant God which frankly is incredible in light of that description of covenants, that he willingly binds himself to people, though he is the freest of all beings, that he chooses to partner with them, though he is all-powerful in himself without any help, 
that he chooses to have a relationship with the likes of us and to formalize it. In the scriptures, he is the the first and the most repeated covenant maker. And this should shock us and humble us. It should fill us with awe and wonder and gratitude. God's covenants include callings, a calling on the people he's made a covenant with, and promises to them. Law and love. He calls his covenant partners to particular ways of relating to him and to the world and to themselves. And he gives them promises. Again, it is worth noting how unexpected and wonderful this is. God makes promises. He doesn't need to. He could just make demands. As our maker, he has the right. But he is a covenant God. This is beautiful and a wonderful truth. So let's do a survey of the scriptures to understand this better, okay? So we see four explicit covenants. I actually say it's a covenant in the Old Testament. And each one adds it with God. Each one adds a degree of clarity to God's ultimate plans. So first, he covenants with Noah. He's reiterating in this covenant his calling on humanity, and he promises not to destroy all flesh with flood again. He hangs up his bow in the sky as a sign. He won't deal with the evil of humanity like that again, not in that way. So that begs the question, how will he deal with it? The next covenant brings more clarity. He forms a covenant with Abraham. He will give this man, he promises him, an innumerably large family, which will be his means of blessing the world, the whole world. Again, he gives a sign of a covenant, this time much more personal and intimate sign, a sign of pain and purification, the sign of circumcision. And this is how God will respond to the world's brokenness without destroying them. He will bless them through Abraham. And then the next covenant enlightens us even more because this is the one that Jeremiah mentions, by the way, when he's talking about that covenant. The the promised Abrahamic family of that last covenant has become a reality. And God comes to this family, covenanting with them to make them into more than a family. He will make them a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, he says. We, of course, know the Ten Commandments that are associated with this covenant, but its promises are even more staggering. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now you see why in Jeremiah, God calls himself their husband. He says, because when he did this covenant, he called them his treasured possession among all peoples. And Through this love, he writes his law for them in stone. But at the point that we're at in Jeremiah, at this point in Israel's story, they have broken that covenant with God. They have gone their own way in unfaithfulness to their calling and disregard for their covenant God. And this is what has landed them in exile. And this is why God has brought calamity upon them. But God is not content to give up on his unfaithful people. Covenant making and covenant keeping is part of who he is. So he promises a new covenant, a better covenant that can actually overcome the failures of humanity. And how will it do that? Well, before I answer that, let me remind you, I only mentioned three, but I said there were four Old Testament covenants. 
each with escalating insight into God's plan for the world. And in the fourth, God forms a covenant with one of Israel's early kings, King David, in which the expansive calling and promises upon the Israel's people, their covenant, it's zeroed in onto one man among this covenant people. This covenant, in this covenant, God says that the solution to the world's problems will come through one of David's descendants, and he will establish an everlasting kingdom. He will be the more excellent mediator of a new covenant, as the book of Hebrews says. And God will overcome the failure of humanity to keep covenant with him. How? By becoming a human himself and keeping the covenant himself with the Father perfectly, taking the consequences himself of covenant failure upon himself, and then sharing the blessing of covenant promises with all who receive them from him by faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of all previous covenants and the mediator of a new covenant. God again forms a covenant through Jesus. You can recognize the covenants by their mountains and their signs. But in particular, Noah at Mount Ararat, Abraham at Mount Moriah, Israel at Mount Sinai, David at Mount Zion, Jesus at Mount Calvary. Listen to how Hebrews 9.15 says it so clearly. Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. His death redeems the called from their transgressions and their covenant failure and assures them of eternal inheritance. This is the new covenant in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are now in covenant with God. We've seen how God's covenants, they, in general, they resolve this recurring conflict between law and love. But the new covenant, in particular, resolves it in an even greater way, reconciling law and love in the heart. Look at how Jeremiah describes the new covenant in verse 33. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says in that old covenant, I wrote the law in stone, but now I will write it on their hearts. Amen. Law and love united in the heart through the new covenant in Christ, our hearts are changed to love God's law. That is what the new covenant makes possible. When Christ takes our death upon himself, he shares his life with us. His spirit lives within us, causing us to love what he loves and how he loves and the way he loves, meaning that decree becomes our delight. And duty becomes desire. And religion becomes relationship. And works become worship. And rules become righteousness. And commands become communion. G.K. Chesterton once wrote a book about St. Francis of Assisi. And he explained why other scholars have stumbled over making sense of this man. Be because to them, Chesterton explains that religion is an impersonal philosophy 
But the key to understanding St. Francis is this, and this, I love this quote. His religion was not a thing like a theory, but a thing like a love affair. I love that. Our religion too should be less of a theory and more of a love affair. In other words, Chesterton is saying, a man will not act the way St. Francis did for an idea, but they will for a person. They will when they are in love He says the riddles would be easily resolved in the simplicity of any noble love. Only this was so noble a love that nine out of 10 men have hardly even heard of it. Being in love really is a great understanding of the difference here. Chesterton is is not reaching with that analogy. I think it's similar to what God is saying in Jeremiah when he, he says he took them by the hand as their husband, but they scorned him. It's unrequited love. I know a little bit about unrequited love. I was a mere friend of the love of my life for 10 years, 10 very long years. Good friends, but just friends. And by God's grace, something changed. Maybe I'll tell you the details about that some other time, but for this illustration, what's important is the result. Because we, when we were friends, I was in love, she wasn't, I could be a bit much. I, I, and embarrassingly, a desperate puppy dog, you know? I didn't receive nearly as much attention as I desired. But when she finally, thank you, Lord, fell for me in return, it was like I could never get her off the phone. She was calling me night and day and early morning. My demands on her time were no longer demanding. You see, they were her delight. My love was requited. I was written on her heart the way she had so long been written on mine. We made and continue to make incredible demands on one another. That's a part of true love. But we long to bless and be blessed by one another. Love and law are inseparable. They are meant to be united. And they are in this beautiful way in the new covenant. We are folded into the inter-Trinitarian love of God, brought into the love shared between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are on the inside rather than the outside because Jesus has welcomed us in and made a way. And the delight is not just for us. It's how God feels. In the next chapter, one of the most beautiful passages in Jeremiah 32, I love how this passage talks about the new covenant. In verse 40, he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Now listen to this. I will rejoice in doing them good. It is his joy and delight to do good to us. He delights in it. Just like he empowers us to delight in doing good for, toward him. This leads us to the second similar problem that the new covenant solves, which is calling without capacity. Covenants involve a calling on one's life. But God's people have shown themselves incapable of living up to that calling again and again. Those of you who were here two weeks ago, remember that Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry under the reign of Josiah, that young king with, the, with a heart after God. And Josiah began this dramatic religious reform of the kingdom, removing idols and altars and their priests and rehabilitating the temple of the Lord, rediscovering the scriptures and, and the law of the Lord and calling the nation to follow it. And the people even supported their king's efforts. But Jeremiah sees that they only did so on the surface. 
They had a pretense of religion, but it didn't affect their whole life. And Jeremiah says that their hearts are still desperately sick. King Josiah did all that he could. He was a great king and he did great things. He did. Let's not take that away from him, but a mere human king can't change hearts. But what if there was a king who can? Jeremiah points us to that king. A king who can write his decrees not merely in stone or in paper, but on the heart. A king who can empower us to live out our calling, who can bless us into becoming a blessing. Again, in Jeremiah 32, he says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. In Jeremiah 24, 7, that's an easy one to remember, 24, 7, he says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. God is the uniter and the completer of our divided and incomplete hearts. Through the Spirit, he gives us hearts to know him and not forsake him. His power in us is what keeps us with him. The Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith was once reflecting on Jack Kerouac's famous novel, On the Road, and uh, in which a character says this. He says, nobody can get to that last thing. We keep on living in hopes of catching it once for all. And Smith says, that character's right. You can't get to that last thing from here. But what if someone came to get you? And you, you can't get to that last thing, but what if it came to you? And what if that thing turned out to be a someone? And if that someone not only knows where the end of the road is, but promises to accompany you the rest of the way there, never to leave you or forsake you until you arrive. This is the God who runs down the road to meet prodigals. Grace, it isn't this high-speed transport to the end, but it, it's, it's, it's a gift of his presence all the way there. And it's the remarkable promise of his son who meets us in this distance with the promise, my father's house has many rooms. There's room for you in his father's house. His home is your end. He is with you every step of the way there. We are a part of a pilgrim people. And our new home has reached back to get us and accompany us home together. Giving us this capacity to fulfill our calling. The new covenant, it, it empowers us. But it not only empowers us to succeed, but it also provides forgiveness when we fail. Look at the second half of verse 34. He says, I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant resolves this third very important problem of failure without forgiveness. Of, of reproach without redemption. Guilt without grace. This is the stifling air of a culture that, seems, that, that keeps the abstract values of Christianity, but dethrones Christ. This is the, the moralizing of religious legalists. But it's also what our secularized Western culture has become because we have these abstract values that we've inherited from Christianity such as equality and compassion and freedom and progress, but we forget the one who embodies them and gives them. 
And this is why our culture is so combative and condemning and judgmental. Because values and morality, they can only judge you. They can't forgive you. Only a person can do that. And we desperately need such a person who is above and beyond the values and morality. A person who does not merely demand the best of us, but who forgives the worst of us. Someone who is willing to treat us better than our law-breaking deserves. Someone who is not only willing, but able to make a way to do such a thing. Which is what Jesus has done in the new covenant. This is why when Jesus lifted the cup of what I assume was red wine, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus spilled his own blood for our healing. This is the deep and heavy healing that Jeremiah points to. The healing of Christ's life for ours. This is how Jesus saw himself as a healer, a physician, he says, right? Jesus says to those, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, you are in need of healing. And I will not heal your wounds lightly. I will heal them deeply and completely. I will go to the greatest lengths and pay the greatest price to provide the remedy. Jesus says he is a physician, not a prosecutor. He came to care, not to condemn. He calls us to acknowledge our need for healing. Confessing our sin and receiving his forgiveness. Believing it. He will forgive you. And remember your sin no more. The all-knowing, infinite mind of God will forget your sin. He promises you this kind of extraordinary grace for your guilt. He covenants with you in Christ to forgive all your iniquity. Remember your sin no more. This is the good news of the gospel, that it's not just good advice We've had more than enough good advice. We're swimming in it. Our world is drowning in it. But the gospel is not that. It's good news. It's a way home, a, a healing hope. It offers us redemption for all the sin and shame we don't know what to do with. Rather than just piling more on. Jesus came to call sinners. Why? Because sinners are the ones who need forgiveness and he wants to forgive. We fit like a hand in a glove. But forgiveness is not the end. It's a glorious step toward a more glorious end. And if we don't see this, we'll be just like those people that God sent into exile. Because remember back in Jeremiah 7, two weeks ago we talked about this, where they came into the temple and they said what? We are delivered and kept on doing what? Abominations. They came and made their sacrifices saying we're forgiven. And they lived like God meant little to them. They were using temple worship as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And God said, you're missing the whole point because you think these covenantal sacrifices that I've established are a way to live your life without me, without consequence, when the whole reason I've put this system in place is so that we could live our lives together, that I may be your God and you may be my people. This is the whole point of a covenant. It's more than a contract, more than a consumer relationship. It's a belonging to one another in a significant way. And so the new covenant is the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit to make a covenant that will actually act like a covenant. 
in which God and his people belong to one another and have a relationship with one another, a covenant in which God's people know him, really know him, all of them from the greatest to the least. This is what uh, it says, starting in the, the last part of verse 33, it says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. This is the last problem this covenant solves, that of the kingdom without the king. Like Bono and Johnny Cash wrote and sang about, they say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. This is the temptation, that it become about something other than the one we were made for. That he becomes obscured by all the other concerns and desires of our life. And increasingly, the idea of loyal commitment the idea of belonging to someone and losing our independence, that's anathema, unthinkable. I once met a, uh, my friend Scott's fiance. Uh, I had heard him talk about her. Her name was Laura, but I'd never met her. And I ran into her without Scott being present at a friend's house, a mutual friend. And we exchanged greetings and names. And she said, hi, I'm Laura. I was like, hi, I'm Jay. And after a minute, I realized the connection. I was like, oh, you're Scott's Laura. And she looked at me all weird and kind of laughed a condescending laugh and nudged her friends and joked something like, yeah, he bought me with a dowry. She was so appalled at the thought of belonging to her fiance. And I'm sad for her because that's not real love. Our radical individuality is stealing love from us, but also is our ravenous consumerism. Because we all, we want disposable relationships that we can get rid of if they don't live up the way we think they should. As consumers, if a particular business's quality or prices don't please us, we move on, shop around. And increasingly, that is becoming how we relate to every relationship. To our churches, to our towns, to our vocation, even to our family and friends and even spouses. We don't want belonging. We want benefits. But you can't relate to God that way. He is a covenant God, and you can only relate to him through a covenant. You can't be casual acquaintances with him. My dad used to always tell me not to do things half, and then he'd use a word I shouldn't say up here, but you know. Let's just say halfway. And God doesn't do things halfway. He's an all-in God. And if he's going to have a relationship with you, it is going to be a covenant. He wants to give you all of himself and he won't be satisfied with anything less. And he is more than willing to do that in a covenant relationship, a binding belonging. This is what you must be ready for, to belong to him completely. When we enter this new covenant in Christ, we do, we, not only do we belong to him, but he belongs to us. He is ours and we are his. And in this covenant, we can know him really deeply, relationally know him. There's a reluctance about this among people. I, I see it. Someone in our church was just telling me about a conversation they were having with a uh, a friend about their faith, the friend had this short little stint of church going. And so they were asking about it. Like, hey, what was up with that? 
And the person would say, well, I know there's a higher power. And it's a similar thing to uh, another friend of mine who says, who was always talking about the universe. See, the temptation to depersonalize God. There's a kind of shyness about thinking you can actually know him as a person. But this is the extraordinary offer of the gospel, to know him, the maker of the universe, not just the universe, your maker. You can know him personally. It's the only way he can be known. This radically personal religion is the main difference between the old and new covenant Like the beginning of Hebrews puts it like this. I love the beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Previously, he's saying he's spoken to us in many times in different ways, but now he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is the proof of this incredible desire of God to be known personally. He became a human person to be known by humans personally. He became one of us to have a relationship with us. This becomes, when we know this, the defining mark of our lives. Greater banner over our life than anything else. Jeremiah 9 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That boasting in the Lord that Jeremiah says there, it might sound familiar to you because the Apostle Paul quotes that in his writings. In, Jer- he, in 1 Corinthians, Apostle Paul writes, God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, and this is where he quotes him, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It's through Jesus. He is our righteousness, our wisdom, our sanctification, our redemption, that text says. And because of that, we can know God. We have a relationship with him of mutual sharing of our lives an interchange of speaking and listening and loving. We Christians call the Bible the word of God. Now, it is possible to love the Bible as, as literature. I fall into that camp. But it's not that way for most people. Most Christians who love the Bible don't come to it like an engaging novel. They come to it like a friend or a partner. You don't listen to a loved one because they're so eloquent, do you? But because you want to know them and hear from them and, and, and be in relationship with them. Though I find the scriptures fascinating and engaging as a work of art, it's, it, that is not a higher and better way to read it. If, in fact, people like me need to be reminded it's not just something to be fascinated by. It's how we hear from our God. If you don't enjoy the scriptures in that way, that's fine. You're in the same boat as if you don't enjoy the way your best friend structures his sentences. You never even think about that. It's irrelevant. It's not the point. He is speaking to us and we listen. 
but he also listens to us. And we speak to him, believing it to be true with confidence. Let me share a story of one man who exemplified this reality. It, the main point will be at the end, but I'm going to go take the scenic route because I love talking about him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian in Nazi Germany. He was a significant figure in, in the resistance against Hitler and the, and the broken German church. And even a, a part of an, the establishment of what would be called the Confessing Church, which remained loyal to Jesus alone while other churches were caving under the pressure. He was a remarkable man of faith who wrote the well-known books, Life Together and Cost of Discipleship. He called the Church of Christ to be stronger than the dark cultural forces around them. And through his public and private subversion of the Third Reich, he was arrested and executed. And while he was imprisoned, he wrote a poem struggling with his identity because he, he, the watching world saw him and looked at what seemed like profound strength and faith in the midst of this hardship. And he knew, though, personally, all of the turmoil within himself. And he closes that poem like this. Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. That is who he is. He is God's and he knew it deep in his bones and it made him solid and firm in the raging storm around him. We have one record of his death from his prison guard who was, his guard was utterly captivated by Bonhoeffer's sacrifice and listen to the, the account uh, the, bar, the guard wrote down the morning that he took Bonhoeffer to transport him to his execution at the firing squad. He wrote this, through a half-open door of a room in one of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, still in his prison clothes, kneeling in fervent prayer to the Lord his God. The devotion and evident conviction of being heard that I saw in the prayer of this intensely captivating man moved me to the depths. I really wanted you to notice that line. The guard saw in his prayer evident conviction of being heard. This is a part of knowing our God, being heard by him and knowing it, believing it, believing he is with you even in your darkest moments. And it's not just for great Christians like Bonhoeffer. Jeremiah is careful to point out from the greatest to the least this new covenant applies. Every single person in this new covenant knows God, knows the most important thing about God, that he is a God of extraordinary grace. That he loves you so much that he gave his only son to, take, to give his life as a ransom for yours. To redeem you by his blood. And to fill you with his own spirit. His very self. To commune with him and the rest of his covenant people. And in a moment after I pray, we will do that very thing through the Lord's Supper which Christ gave to us is a gift. And when he did so, he quoted Jeremiah's promise of the new covenant. He says, it's here in me, forged through my blood, sustained by my body, my life. Now receive the new covenant. Receive me in faith. If you have such faith in Christ this morning, as a part of the new covenant people, please partake of the bread and the cup with us.
After I pray in a moment, you'll come forward and gather the elements and return to your seat. And once all are served, we will eat and drink in unity. Deacons, you can come as I pray. Holy Father, I thank you for being a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And we thank you for the new covenant in your son, through your son, that we can be forgiven and empowered to live new lives. And most of all, that we can know you, all of us, and belong to one another forever. Father, bless us as we remember and celebrate all that you've done for us in Jesus now. We pray with our Lord Jesus. Amen.